Welcome to Everyday Martial Artist, a weekly podcast where you'll join me, Brian Doucette, as I interview a different martial artist each episode and hear their story. Some guests you may have heard of, and some you probably haven't. Be sure to subscribe where all your favorite podcasts are available. Also, visit our website at everydaymartialartist.com. If you're listening for a specific interview, I sure hope you'll stay and check out the other episodes. A very special thank you to Topher Williams for our custom theme music. And now, the newest episode of Everyday Martial Artist. Everyday Martial Artist is brought to you by KOonline.com for all your martial arts needs. Sparring and safety gear, rank belts, uniforms, weapons, patches, and more. Wholesale supplies made by martial artists for martial artists. Visit us today at KO-Online.com. Hello and welcome to Everyday Martial Artist. I'm your host, Brian Doucette, and as we do every week, we're joined by a brand new guest talking about their life and their journey throughout the world of martial arts. My guest today was born in Glendale, California, and attended Cal State Northridge. He's an actor, choreographer, martial arts expert, and weapons expert. On television, you may have seen him in shows like the original Battlestar Galactica, The A-Team, The Master, Dukes of Hazard, my all-time favorite, MacGyver, Renegade, Star Trek Voyager, Grim NCIS, and Mythbusters. And his fight scene from the show Highlander is considered by many fans of the show to be one of the best in the show's run. On the big screen, you've seen him in shows like Masters of the Universe, Roadhouse, Batman Returns, Fearless, and many, many more. His martial arts and weapons expertise make him a sought-after instructor and choreographer. He's a sword master, whip master, horse specialist, and bladed weapons throwing specialist. He's world-renowned with the bullwhip and has instructed such notables as Michelle Pfeiffer and Harrison Ford. Please welcome my guest today, Black Belt Hall of Fame member, Mr. Anthony DeLongis. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing very well, thank you. <laughs> you, make, you make me feel old. Uh, well, <laughs> I will tell you, next April will mark my 50th year as a working professional. That's awesome. I, uh, I start counting when I started getting paid, which was in 1973. Okay. At the Old Globe Theater in San Diego. So, yeah, it'll, it'll be 50 years. I've been studying weapons longer than that. But, That's uh, awesome. I guess, I guess about that yeah well yeah how we like to start the show i want to go back to the very beginning i want to know where that first interest that first spark about martial arts came from and kind of what started your martial arts journey well i <laughs> i i had uh, i had an injury um well actually the first when i was in high school I, I was not very very athletic at all um the one thing that kind of broke through for me was um they were doing a play called tea house of the august moon and uh, there were a lot of characters in it. And I thought, oh, well, I can go be a villager or whatever, you know. And I read for it and I ended up getting the lead. And that changed my life. You know, it was my first, you know, uh, <laughs> the bite of the apple. And, mm -hmm. it, and you know, it's um, I've been addicted ever since. I I love I love acting. I love the work. I love the challenge. Uh, it, uh, it always demands your very best. It always has been and always is. The both the easiest thing I've ever done and the hardest thing I've ever done. Okay. You know, I'm always trying to get better. Now, my um, when I got to my senior year, I started changing my body because I wasn't very athletic, and I thought, well, shoot, I need to. This is the instrument that you know I'm going to use to tell my story. I need to have more options. So I went out for wrestling, and I oh. started lifting weights and this other stuff, and I didn't. Uh, I wasn't particularly good, but I'd gotten very strong. I, I kind of wish I knew, knew then what I know now. Mm -hmm. That's true of a lot. And boy, I could grab you and I could hang on and that, that helped a lot. So when I got to college, I, I grew up in London, Ontario. I was born here, but um, family moved up there and, you know, I went all the way through public and high school and then I uh, 
Oh, I did very well in my ACTs, and I applied to both UCLA and Northridge. I was accepted at both. I opted for the smaller school because I thought, oh, well, you know, the big school, I might be a little bit intimidated. Oddly enough, I ended up teaching in the theater arts department from 74 to 93. Oh, wow. I I taught stage combat and character movement and, you know, basically fight skills. So I went out for um, I went out for a wrestling practice and some guy pinned my foot and then body slammed me and dislocated my hip. Wow! I was told uh, you will always. Yeah, I heard a scream and realized it was me. But I was told you'll you know you'll always walk with a limp. You'll be a cripple. Blah blah this and that. You'll be on crutches for three months. You know I was. 17, 18 at the time. So I kind of went, you don't, t- well, <laughs> the doc- <laughs> I said to the doctors, you don't tell me, I tell you. <laughs> yep. And it's, it's something that sort of held me in good stead ever since. But, you know, I lasted about three days on the crutches and then um, I ended up going out for, I, you know, my, my dreams of uh, wrestling and uh, gymnastics, you know, were, uh, although there aren't a lot of six foot one gym- gymnasts, but I didn't <laughs> Not know. really, no. So I, w- I went out for fencing, and I found that I liked it. Oh. And uh, I had a um, Polly, uh, trying to think her, of her name. It'll come to me in a minute. Uh, she um, she was she was a wonderful teacher, and uh, she said, uh, you know, well, I liked it. Uh, she said, come out for the team. I went out for the team, you know. And then uh, I started fencing my senior year in college. I was Western Intercollegiate Saber Champion. Wow. Um, and that was my first martial art. And I started studying with uh, Maestro Ralph Faulkner, who ran Falcon Studios. He was a two-time Olympian. Uh, my coach introduced me to him. Margaret Bauer was her name. Okay. But um, Maestro Ralph Faulkner was a two-time Olympian, and he was sword master to the stars back in the golden age of Hollywood. He did the original Prisoner of Zenda and, you know, a long list of things, Seven Voyages wow. of Sinbad. One of the things he's best known for is uh, the court jester you know, the vessel with the pestle and the pellet with the poison and mm-hmm. all of that. So he was the first great teacher in my life. And uh, and then at 73, I read for the company down at uh, San Diego at the Old Globe and went down there. And I was I was in the journeyman program, but a uh, part opened up in the third play because it's done in repertory. You, you rehearse two, open two, rehearse the third, open all three, run in repertory, uh, which there is no better training than that. But I started choreographing down there. You know, I started doing um, the you know outdoor green show and this and that. And a part opened up in uh, King Lear, and I ended up playing um, Edgar in King Lear. And they came. The Richard Chamberlain came down from um, wow. the people from um, the Amundsen Theater, which was you know the biggest theater in L.A. at the time. And back when they used to mount productions instead of just import them, mm-hmm. and uh, they had me come up and read for the Vicomte de Valver, who's the one who you know fights the. It's the duel in rhyme. It basically sets the stage. If this doesn't work, none of the rest of the play does. So I was offered either uh, I could come up to and do Cyrano at the Amundsen and get my equity card, or I could. I was offered a full scholarship at ACT in uh, San Francisco, and I opted for, for, for the. For, I opted for the uh, actor's equity card. Okay. Uh, but the it, it opened up to where the guy who was supposed to do the choreography, his name is George Gonchev, he had been a uh, coach for the um, British fencing team, oh, wow. and he had a he had a problem, and I got to do the choreography. It was my first big piece of choreography, and something I'm still very very proud of. Um, but I played the Vicomte Valver, I did the choreography, so I came back the next year in '74 at uh, the Old Globe and. 
Oh, I was part of the equity company, and then I was choreographing. I, I uh, we did Romeo and Juliet, and I played uh, Tybalt, and I did the choreography, and then that started my doing a lot of choreography uh, for the Old Globe up until 1984, when we did uh, the 50th anniversary of Rashomon, which uh, you know started as a play, at least on Broadway, and um, I played the samurai husband, and I did all the choreography, and it was again, I'm always trying to do more and. Um, see how I can push the envelope. And um, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's basically what's really the truth. And there's four different stories. And the first one is the bandit. And he talks about, you know, this mighty battle between, you know, these godlike warriors that he triumphed and this and that. So that's the finite choreograph. And then at the end, there's a guy who says they didn't want to fight. You know, the, the wife shamed him into it and they, they were terrible. And I, so I did exactly the same fight, except nothing worked and, you know, everything. And, and it became, it became a farce really. And so it was some of my best work. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> David Carradine, who I'd worked with in uh, circle of iron, mm-hmm. uh, he came down to see it. And uh, yeah, there weren't any seats. It was sold out by that point. And he was in the lighting booth. And when the play <laughs> was over, he was apparently hammering on the glass and cheering. Oh, wow. Um, and my friend Patrick Culleton had come. Uh, so that was pretty cool. There is a parallel with all of this, which we will get into. Okay. But so it started with performance. But as I was doing it, it, it became a parallel career for me. You know, mm-hmm. in front of the camera and on stage, uh, I was doing verbal dialogue. And then, you know, uh, behind the camera or in roles that I was performing, like MacGyver is one of my favorite roles. It was episode 22, the end of the first season. I was Pietro the assassin. That was back when I could actually pin myself against the rafters, uh, you know, in a closet, like a ninja. I remember that episode. (laughs) I was a little slimmer then and (laughs) a little younger, a lot younger, a little stronger, but um, yeah. And I got to do, Oh, I had fake scars and, you know, I went, well, I'm an actor, so I'm going to do a bunch of different, you know, accents. I was a master of disguise. And then we have a big fight at the end, you know, where I'm disguised as a nun and then I whip off that nasty habit. And, you know, I was, the, I was the kicking nun. I used to uh, joke about that, <laughs> but um, that was fun. Um, funny thing was uh, a month and a half ago, the coordinator on that, his name's um, Vince Dedrick Jr. Mm-hmm. His father was very big in the business. And now uh, Vince has been very big in the business for a long time. One of his first big parts was doubling, um, uh, Michael Douglas in Romancing the Stone. Oh, cool. Okay. And that whole slide down the thing and ending yep. up in her lap and, you know, all of that. Uh, but, you know, we, that was the, f- the first time we worked together was on MacGyver. Oh, wow. And then a couple of years ago, I did a fencing sequence for them for uh, iCarly. Mm-hmm. And then he called me up a couple months ago and said, um, can you throw axes? And I said, well, actually, I heard he was looking for an axe throw. And I said, uh, Vince, I just <laughs> threw uh, knives for, you know, this coordinator, that, and blah, blah, blah. And I ran down about six different. I like to be able to train to actually do stuff, mm-hmm. which make easy to film. It also gives you a credibility that you don't get when you do it in cuts and pieces and and CGI and all that other stuff. You only have to do it once, but if you see the character actually do it, it just it makes the audience identify with them and go, "Well, I, I could I could do this too. I could rise right. to it." But it's a credibility, like Michelle Pfeiffer as Catwoman. She did all her own whip work. None of the professional stunt girls, even Kathy Long, who was five-time world kickboxing mm-hmm. champion, she got nowhere near Michelle's ability with it because Michelle awesome. saw it was trying to give her 
another vocabulary to craft her character. And of course, the audience is seeing her and that combination of allure and danger and, you know, hypnotic, oh boy, you're, you're so sexy and oh crap, you know, you'll, uh, you'll hurt me. <laughs> you know, it gave her a credibility that was absolutely priceless. You know, later on when Halle, Halle Berry did it for uh, Catwoman, mm-hmm. alas, they did it CGI. And yep. um, you could tell. I to get involved with it. Well, and it became a television. Well, and then it's a video game, you know. And um, so basically, uh, I started um, I started with uh, Maestro Faulkner and I trained with him for about a dozen years. And um, then I trained in um, Taekwondo. Oh, really? Uh, okay. for Red Bull level. Yeah. And okay. uh, Master Young Kill Kim. But I felt like I have a whole, you know, I'm, yeah, if you see, I saw Battlestar Galactica, yeah, I've got a jumping sidekick in there. You see Roadhouse, you know, I'm doing some kicking. Although there's a whole other fight while um, Sam Elliott is fighting. Um, Not Marshall. Marshall Teague. Okay. Yes. Yep. Uh, you know, and uh, which uh, Marshall's a terrific guy and yes. very, very skilled. Yep. But he, um, well, while they're fighting, I'm I'm fighting Patrick again. <laughs> and uh, you know, they want me to do an axe kick at, uh, you know, uh, Ben Gazar is sitting at the bar. And he's got a mug of beer next to him. And the coordinator goes, can you do an axe kick and break this mug of beer? You know, it's a breakaway, but still. Uh, and I'm going, well, these pants are awfully tight. But, you know, that was back when I could put my knee against my chest and, you know, do a variety of kicks. But I, I always kind of went, you know, this I'm about maxed out in how good I'm going to be with these kicks. I need to find some other things. You know, I've got big holes in my hands and and I'm a weapons guy. You know, uh, at that point, it was all European weapons. Uh, and I heard about Dan Inosanto. So I trained with Guru Dan between 10 to 12 years. Um, That's awesome. And uh, those first two great teachers, Maestro Faulkner and Guru Dan Inosanto, gave me the tools to create my whip system, which is very unique. And we can probably go into more detail about that if you want. But that was what I started with. And then the last 12 years, I've been studying um, Shinkendo under Kaiso Toshishiro Obata and my sensei, which is Matthew Lynch, who's one of his senior instructors and has been with him for 23 years. So I have a um, a very, um, I I have a broad, I've studied a lot of different styles Mm -hmm. from a lot of countries and a lot of different weapons and and been you know <laughs> i've i've been um, you know teaching and training for over you know <laughs> for 50 years now and i find the more the the more i study you know the more i learn and the more each uh informs what i've already learned but you know there's um I have a structure when I teach. Um, it, it's basically in every martial art. It's strength through structure rather than effort, which is skeletal alignment, mm-hmm. which is essentially your elbows are behind your hands, your body's behind your elbow. Uh, and then essentially they have to deal with your entire body all the time. If you're trying to use the strength of your arms or if you if you have a bend in your wrist, like you can't punch something with a bent wrist because right. your, your structure is flawed, you'll break your wrist. If you want... Well, I tell people, look, the uh, if you don't move your feet, you're just a stationary target waiting to get run over. The other thing is if you don't move your feet, you only have the strength in your arms and as much rotation as you can get, you know, out of from about the waist up. And that's the problem with many martial artists and most performers, both actors and a lot of stunt people, too. Uh, your feet unlock your hips. 
and you generate power from your hips. But your your foot has to point where you want to go in order to unlock the hip. Does that make sense? Perfect sense. Yeah, well, and, and it's in every martial art I've ever studied. Right. But because my job, you know, when I'm working with yeah, my students and and I, you know, and people come to me with a variety of training and I love it the more trained they are. But I kind of go, do you, do you want me to, do you want to approach this as a martial artist from, you know, what's combatively viable? Or do you want to approach this as a storyteller uh, where we're using the same techniques? It's just we're becoming experts at not hitting things or people. And the parallel is identical because by not hitting you, it means I can hit you anytime I want to. It's just I have the control. Like when I work with Jet Li, um, Wu Ping and uh, uh, flew me over to Shanghai to partner Jet Li in the uh, Tournament of Champions in Fearless. And they were looking for a guy who uh, did both swords and whips. And fortunately, my name kept coming up. A fellow named um, Mike Leader uh, was kind of responsible you know, for finding me and you know, getting me onto the project, which it was a wonderful adventure. But um, before I came, apparently they'd had some you know, five-time boxing champion, something or other. And within the first two minutes, he punched uh, Chet Lee in the face and broke his nose. Wow. So, you know, filming stopped. Uh, and, you know, he had to go away for three or four days. And then when he came back, you know, within five minutes, uh, the guy had punched him in the face again. And, of course, he was gone. And it also meant that everybody else, it didn't matter, you know, what you had done and what they thought you could do and this and that. You know, uh, you kind of had to prove it. So, you know, I was in their house and they they worked the way they work and I had to fit in and, you know, I had to rise to the occasion. It was great because... Wu Ping and his team would throw together some stuff. And when uh, he and Jet were happy, Jet would get up. He and I would walk it slowly, like, you know, two or three times. And it's about a 12-move sequence, each one, which is a lot because in Hollywood, very few people do more than three. But coming from a stage background, it's, you know, I have no problem with it. Then uh, we walked it a couple times. Then we'd shoot it at speed. The first phrase we shot three times. After that, we never shot anything more than twice. Wow. I caught them up. Uh, they were five days behind in their filming. Uh, I caught them up three of those days in two half days of filming. So they were very happy with me. Nice. Uh, but it, uh, I had to bring my A game. I had to totally commit to where Jet was going to be. And yet at the same time, you know, be in control. So all of the things that I had uh, been training and, you know, it's where you, you control distance, you control timing, you control the weapon, um, you utilize multiple angles and not just linear forward and back. That's what gave me the vocabulary to be able to hang with Jet. And the funny thing was neither one of us knew the choreography because we would put it, we would, uh, we would find something, we'd walk a couple of times, we'd shoot it twice, and then we'd do it all over again. We were literally making it up on the spot. And neither one of us knew the choreography, but I would move and Jet would adjust. He would move and I would adjust. And it was our combined 70 plus years at the time of training that allowed us to literally create on the spot. And that's kind of where my parallel between, because everything I teach and everything I do has a combative foundation. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm utilizing techniques that this is how you kill somebody. You know, when I did um, oh, the Duende episode of Highlander, when we were fighting with Rapier and Dag in the Rain with Adrian Paul and my friend, um, you know, Swordmaster Braun McCash, and I put the fight together. And uh, it was, again, a case of 
we'd put it together the night before Adrian, we showed it to him once we go, Oh, we'll rehearse on set in the morning. It was raining. So we had no rehearsal at all. We walked on set and just shot. And it was because of, you know, Adrian's ability and the fact that, you know, he's he's a trained martial artist and, you know, he, he would get he would get <laughs> you know, at least one fight every show. Uh, and for 22 episodes a season, this was season five. So there had been, you know, over 100 hours of television at that point. And then in the off season, he would continue to train. So, you know, he was uh, it, it was it was a lot of fun partnering with him. But it, I, I actually introduced a style of fighting that had never been on film before. The um, Spanish Mysterious Circle, where, you know, it's a 17th century, uh, you know, system. The Spanish you know, were kind of virtually unchanged for almost 300 years, where everybody else was uh, leaning towards the Italian, which is very athletic and mm-hmm. the powerful lunge. And it's what we think of as modern fencing. Mm-hmm. The Spanish were, you know, much more upright. And this is what I tried to recreate in the Duende episode, you know, the upright, defiant posture of the matador, you know, the staccato foot changes and, you know, the power that comes from torquing the hip and, you know, moving offline. Uh, so it's constantly changing distance and the whole idea of the system is you are always within swords point if i move three to six inches and you don't counter i have a direct line to something vital it's also made for a whole lot of fun to film because you could get both of us in frame at the same time so that's uh and what i choreograph what i try to do is i try to you know everything you everything you choose tells a story i say okay there's verbal dialogue and then there is action you know dialogue and that's and when you can combine the two in a role it's extremely powerful Every time, you know, like if you attack a certain way, uh, very here's how I like to work. You know, I'm working with my partner and Braun McCash loved having me come. He says, oh, this is great. I only have to do half the fight now because he would do something and I would counter. And I go, well, you want to do A or do you want to do B? He says, oh, let's do B. You know, and then, you know, I would come back with a counter to his counter and we'd go back and forth and we would choose and it would tell a specific story. You know, because each each choice is like a line of dialogue and each technique, you know, is is a sentence that you've constructed in this sort of deadly uh, duel of, well, it, what would be words, but is now, you know, bladed weapons or, you know, whatever it happens to be. <laughs> and so um, I always try to create the environment for the technique that we've selected to tell the story to be obvious so the audience can see They can see the jeopardy as it's developing. Um, One of my pet peeves about most film fights, with rare exceptions, is it's shaky vision and wobble scope and the camera's way too close. And they have a tendency to edit on the action, which means you don't see the action develop. You don't see the, uh, you know, the opening, the vulnerability. You don't feel like you're part of the fight. You're just observing it. And it's usually mostly chaos. And um, I'm just kind of going, that's not the way to invite an audience to be in the fight, which means to be identifying with your character and, you know, wanting to go along for the journey because there's a narrative and a logic to it. And it drives me crazy because, you know, I'll tell people, the more interesting you are, the fuller the frame they'll shoot you in, the more your body will use because you're using your whole body. Okay. Okay. They do, well, I call it shaky vision, wobble scope, and really, and a lot of tight close-ups to go, oh, no, this is, you know, it's all overwhelming and boom, boom, boom. And, uh, you know, it's gonna, it's, it also hides a lot of the fact that 
not every actor has a lot of ability or has, or has developed those skills. So they think it hides things and they think it pulls you deeper into the fight. And I find it just the opposite. And where it really comes into um, uh, where you get punished for it is where did that weapon come from? Where did that weapon go? Because if they're shooting you from the solar plexus up and your hand drops below that, if you pull something out of your belt, it didn't exist. All of a sudden, there's a weapon there. You're going, where did that come from? And of course, as soon as you go, where did that come from? You're not in the fight anymore. You're not in the story anymore. Right. I did all my training when I when I met Harrison Ford. I'd managed to get my reels to the producers, mm-hmm. the Crystal Skull, and uh, he called me up. You know, and I get this phone call. He says, "Hello, is this Anthony Delongis?" I went, "Yes." Where do I know this voice from? Well, this is Harrison Ford. <laughs> you know, well, I guess we better get you in here to brush the dust off. And you know, I'm kind of go, <laughs> "Okay." But the first time I met him, he said, uh, "I saw your stuff. You're." an amazing swordsman and they said well thank you very much when are we going to do a sword picture <laughs> i guess never but there you go but yeah it was it, it was pretty cool but uh, and he was very cool he, he worked very very hard and uh, you know I, I enjoyed working with him i would have liked to have been um, you know throughout like i was with michelle i was mm-hmm. there every day and we would literally create things i got to get harrison ready but they uh eh, you know there's politics in this business <laughs> <laughs> just a little bit yeah yeah <laughs> we, we, we won't say any more about that but nice. uh, so you, you talked a lot about teaching when did that become something you were passionate about you've been teaching for such a long time is that something you ever thought you'd do when you were younger or did you just kind of fall into it teaching is one of the things i'm proudest of and mm-hmm. i was blessed with some great teachers particularly maestro faulkner and then Grodin and asanto right and then you know now kaiso obata and my sensei matthew lynch and i always i realized the effect they had had on me so it, I, it's important to me to be, be a good teacher okay. and um and, you know i tell people look if if i know something i will find if and you want to learn it i'll find a way to teach it to you i've got a dozen different ways to say the same thing and <laughs> i'll i'll wait for the one that lights the light bulb for you and what's what's fun about that is not everybody learns the same way as you know yeah, <laughs> definitely almost nobody <laughs> learns the same way so i end up teaching i mean i have you know, uh, material that I have been developing and refining for now five decades, but I still teach everybody differently. I'm, I'm constantly saying to people, I've been teaching this over 40 years. I've never taught it like this. You teach me how to teach you. And of course I get the, I'm constantly rediscovering the information as my students do. And I'm constantly, yeah, my my sensei Matthew Lynch uh, refers to it as the onion, you know, because you're always you're always peeling the onion. There's always another layer. And there's always something more. And even though you, I've I've I know this. I've known this for years. You know, so uh, and then you suddenly look at this and go, huh? Why did it take me so long to appreciate that element too, which makes my understanding that much deeper, you know? And so that's that's what gets me. That's why I train every day. I mean, I'm training in Shinkendo three days a week. Um, I'm teaching, you know, uh, usually two or three days a week with private students. People come from all over the country, all over the world to train me here at Rancho Andalo. And then if I'm not working with somebody, I'm working on myself. I, <laughs> I'm, uh, well, let's, let's just say I'm not, I'm no spring chicken. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm not a crusty rooster. Um, <laughs> uh, I'll, be, I'll be 73 um, in March. Okay. And, um, I, you know, I've uh, I've worn some parts out. 
Um, <laughs> you know, I, I had a, a, a laminectomy on my cervical spine oh. uh, three, four years ago and rehab back from that. I had uh, arthritis in my hips and this and that. And I had one and that lasted about a year and a half. And I was doing a picture called uh, dead for a dollar. I was doing the whip stuff last September in uh, New Mexico for Walter Hill's new movie, Dead for a Dollar, with uh, Christoph Waltz and Willem Dafoe. Oh, cool. Uh, and I came in and did some whip action for them in a very short period of time, mm. but uh, it was still fun to do. And uh, my other hip decided I was able to do the job and do it well, but it's just like going, okay, I can work through this. So I was on set and everything worked, but as soon as I stopped, working it seized up again and i got back and then okay yeah you need it anyway the point of this is i've rehabbed myself back from all of those and i felt like i've been gifted with about you know i can ride my horses again without pain i can teach i can work i feel like i've been given back you know 10 to 15 years so i'm taking full advantage of it and a lot of it has to do with the fact that um like with, I was supposed to be in a, you know, in a neck collar for six weeks. And well, unlike when I was 17 and said, you know, <laughs> you don't tell me, I was going, okay, I'll, I'll do that. But after five days, I was kind of going crazy. They hadn't given me any physical therapy. I think they thought they were going to give that after the collar came off. Mm-hmm. And I just started doing all the things I do, but instead of generating power, I utilized it for range of motion okay. and I did everything slow motion. Which gave me, uh, so I was doing, you know, my, you know, my, my body work, my empty hands work, you know, my work with uh, sticks and then double weapons and then, you know, um, you know, staff and things like that. But I was doing it in slow motion. I was doing it uh, with minimal power, but more range of motion. So I sped up my own rehab and it gave me yet another deeper look into material that, you know, I've been refining for you know, decades. So basically I've got, I've got a mantra. It's like, if I'm not getting better, I'm just getting older. And (laughs) there's only, you know, one of those things I can do anything about. So I work every day to get a little better. The the other thing about aging is uh, I kind of go, Rather than lamenting the things I can't do, because obviously they're the things I can't do. You know, I don't run anymore. I tell people, look, I'm not going to chase you, but if you come over here, I'll <laughs> I'll show you a couple things that you might find interesting. <laughs> These days, I'm I'm much more oriented to sensitivity and awareness and refinement, and um, everything is just more efficient. I don't okay. waste myself in areas that when I was younger and more athletic, you know, hey, this is great to fling myself around. Mm-hmm. You know, now it's sort of like, uh, well, and I, a few years back, you know, I had one of those sort of obvious epiphanies, but, you know, the road to mastery lies in simplicity, you know, and I tell people, um, speed doesn't come from working harder. It comes from doing less, you know, so, you know, and, and you're looking in the night and this is why, this is why I like to teach and choreograph because I'm there to help somebody, you know, help somebody else be better, help somebody else develop skills, uh, share the knowledge that I've been working with. But it's, uh, when you're not having to, when you're not somebody else's punching bag, you know, it's like, yes, we, we both know that, you know, you are better at this than I am. That's why I'm here. Can you help me get better too? I'll be a better partner for you if you do. Some people have the mentality of, you know, I got to prove to you that I can kick your ass. <laughs> okay. Uh, now we know that. Can we get on with it? Or, you know, <laughs> no. All right. Well, then you can go find somebody else, you know, that 
go, go, go punch that wall as far as I'm concerned. But the idea is when you're working, you know, that's one of the things I love about Mashu Dojo and uh, Sensei Matthew Lynch and Shinkendo is we're all there to help each other get better. And in doing that, you know, you, you improve immeasurably yourself, but you have the luxury of going, I can see how this technique works from long range to medium range to close range. I can see how redirecting that energy as opposed to absorbing and, you know, blocking and absorbing the energy, you, you get to examine and refine subtleties that you don't get when you're fighting for your life. Does that mm-hmm. make sense? Yes. It's, it's not that, um, well, <laughs> many's the time I've gone on a set and gone, I'll do dojo energy with you if you want. It makes for a long day. Uh, I mean, I've, I've, I've been kicked by Joe Lewis, you know, uh, he took a little something off it. Actually, I, I was recently kicked by Scott Adkins. He also took a little something off of it. Nice. But I'm just, it's okay. I'll take a little contact. Just put it here. Mm-hmm. But, you know, uh, never mind. I won't say anything bad about somebody else. Uh, <laughs> there, there have been places where, you know, as soon as somebody goes, don't worry, I've never hit anybody before. And I'm going, well, then you're due, aren't you? And I'm going to give you one extra step. <laughs> I, um, I, I got called in to uh, do a little fight scene with, um, oh, he pays Thanos. Um, oh, yeah, from Goonies. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah, him. Josh Brolin. Uh, yeah, Josh, Josh, there we Berlin. go. Uh, yeah, so uh, you know, I came to do a fight with Josh Brolin in Gangster Squad. Okay. And uh, you know, we're going to do a fight in a, in a jail cell and this and that. And um, uh, the coordinator comes over and he says, he likes to work close. And I go, how close? And he threw a punch at me that basically was about a quarter of an inch away. And I went, okay, good to know. And it's fine because every time I fight with some, and I, you know, I learned this when I was working with um, Joe Lewis, who was very kind to me in that, um, you know, he didn't actually, there's a great picture. uh, Well, remind me to tell you a a very quick uh, Joe Lewis, Al DeCosco, Mark DeCosco story. Oh, perfect. Yes. But they, uh, yeah, (laughs) dynasties. Every time I take a reaction, you know, when I I worked with, um, oh, Tom Cruise on Far and Away. You know, and uh, I, I got cut into the uh, montage sequence about five times because my reactions are really good. You know, I, every time I take a reaction from somebody, I, I move my feet. So I stretch the distance so I can see what's coming from farther away. They, they have to kind of re-enter or close distance. Okay, which is also good because it buys me camera time. Uh, it's also good because the audience gets to see the jeopardy, you know, as it's building. Where's the danger coming from and what's going to happen? I'm either going to get, I'm either going to avoid it or I'm going to redirect it or I'm going to get hit. You see, these are all story elements. Mm -hmm. Every time I take a reaction, I'll buy a little distance, which was great until I ran into the wall of the, uh, we're in a, we're outside a jail cell, you know, so he's got me up against the wall and I watch him wind up and I'm going, oh shit, you know, and he, you know, he throws the punch and he clips me a little bit because I can't go anywhere. Uh, and afterwards, you go, oh, I got you, didn't I? And it was, yeah, but it's okay. I saw you come in. You know, I rolled with it. But normally I would have controlled distance and even that wouldn't have happened. So it's just the tools that I've been developing not only help me tell a better story, but they also help me be a better martial artist. And they keep reminding me, well, <laughs> uh, Kaiso Toshishiro Obata, you know, he has, if, if you wanted to, he's arguably the greatest living samurai swordsman, you know, he created, you know, his system of Shinkendo. He trained with the last three surviving, uh, 
samurai masters, you know, after World War II. It, 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 extraordinary. And, and he is a genius. He, he was seven times all, all Japan cutting champion. Again, I've been blessed with another great and inspirational teacher uh, in my life. But uh, if you were to sum up, you know, um, his sword play, which is true of everything. But he goes, sword come, you move. <laughs> <laughs> because if you move, you don't have to eat the energy. If you, you buy every time you move, you take power away from your opponent. And, you know, it's it's what makes things martially viable. Uh, it's also what makes for interesting storytelling. So for me, this has been a parallel career. Oh, you asked, you asked the question quite a while ago. Why, why teaching? Um, <laughs> this became a parallel career uh, in terms of I was always looking for a good acting role. Mm-hmm. I had to play Iago twice if I've had. I've had some very nice pieces. I've never had a TV series, which, alas, does not make me a star name. But uh, I'm very proud of the body of work, and I know my best work is yet to come if I can just get get the opportunity. <laughs> but I also, you know, kind of specialize in giving myself more choices when I uh, was playing the role, which happened a little more often when I was younger. I've I played, I've had the opportunity to play a lot of action roles that you know were challenging and fun and very rewarding. Right. Uh, these days, it's a more I'm helping somebody else, actor, uh, coordinator, director, make the most of their character-driven action opportunities. Because if you're not driving story and articulating character, you know, it's just kind of a big sweaty let's wave things around a lot, but it doesn't mean very much. Right. There's an art to all of this. And that's kind of why they call it a martial art. And uh, I'm part of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. And there is an art and a science to um, well, every martial art, but also True. good storytelling. So it, uh, it became a parallel career for me. Okay. And I'm a better performer as a result of it. I'm probably a better person too, I think, you know, because of the teaching. Nice, And it means I can continue it to improve even if I don't have the athleticism that I once had. I'm smarter and I'm more refined and I'm more, uh, I'm more sensitive to the energy of a partner, which again makes me a better martial arts partner. It also makes me a more interesting storyteller because I try to utilize these elements and, uh, and, and it, keep, it keeps me youngish. How did you find the whip? How did that, I mean, that's something that you're, you're kind of known for. How did you discover that? What made you want to start training with that? I saw Indiana Jones and I saw Zorro the Gay Blade. Okay. Yeah, which uh, was very cool. And I thought this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. I've got to, I've got to learn how to do this. I got hold of a guy who claimed he had done it. I found out later that he hadn't, but he wanted more money than I could afford at the time. Mm-hmm. But I was looking at this and I went, why are people working so hard? Um, most people are in the yank and crank school of um, making a big noise, mm-hmm. and, which is a very low bar because the whip, the whip is the first man-made tool to break the sound barrier. It dates to 3000 BC in both the Chinese and Egyptian cultures that we know of. Wow, It's 5,000 years old. One of the things I'm proudest of is I've created something or maybe rediscovered, who knows, but I don't do it the way everybody else does it because to me, water runs downhill. And uh, when the whip lines up with itself, <laughs> which here we go, when all of the parts do the, uh, it was funny because um, I come from a sword background with, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Mr. Faulkner. So I'm looking going, there's eight angles of attack. You know, there's vertical downward, upward, there's horizontal forehand and backhand, there's descending diagonal forehand and backhand, and there's ascending diagonal. 
Now you can cut or thrust on all the, you could say there's 360, but we'll say there's eight. Yeah. That's true in every bladed weapon system, in every, um, you know, whether it's sharp or it's, uh, percussive or it's, you, you can, you can reverse on the lines and there's names in every language. I can teach you these techniques in five languages. I'm only wow. the martial stuff, but the principles are identical. Mm-hmm. Uh, similarly, there's footwork. There's forward and back, which is linear, which most people think is European fencing. There's, you know, uh, lateral, which is side to side, get out of the way, you know, profile redirect, which is very, you know, much, um, Aikijitsu and, uh, you know, where you're, you're, well, you're redirecting the energy. There's descending diagonal where you essentially create a barrier. Do you, do you do Filipino martial arts? Uh, no, I never have actually. Well, uh, they call it male triangle, which is essentially you're standing on a pyramid mm-hmm. and you throw one leg back and face what's coming at you, and, you know, or the other way, like 10 o'clock, 2 o'clock. What you're essentially doing is building a wall and getting behind it. That's descending diagonal. And then ascending diagonal is something's coming at you. But rather than staying on center line, you do an ascending diagonal to either 10 o'clock or 2 o'clock and monitor it as it goes by. And you can see how all this overlays. So there's eight angles plus circle, because if I shift on the circle and you don't counter, then I have created superior leverage, which was the whole idea of the uh, Spanish mysterious circle system. One of the great things when I was uh, doing fearless uh, in between takes, the DP came over and was talking to me. And I gathered this is unusual because Jet Li started taking pictures of us and pointing. (laughs) He had been a performer. He'd been in front of the camera and he was a Wing Chun man. And uh, he he recognized what I was doing with my angulation because I was doing a lot of off angle work Mm -hmm. and he could see my system and he could see the parallels in his system, you know, and it was just like, well, this is enormously gratifying to have somebody. Oh, and he had he'd gone behind the camera and he was a very uh, I think he was one of the DPs on the. Crouching Tiger. So, you know, he's he's top of his game behind the camera, but, you know, he remembers his martial arts uh, background and he's he looks at somebody else. And it was a lovely acknowledgement. It was another one of the things with uh, one of the reasons, one of my favorite uh, career highlights, uh, working with Wu Ping and Jet Li. Uh, they, the first thing they gave me was they, they took the sword and they pumped the arm and they went pokey, pokey, pokey. And I went, oh God, they think European fencing is what they've seen in the movies. <laughs> which is, I refer to it as a miasma of misinformation. Uh, and, you know, and I just went, I'm not going to do that. So I gave them three thrusting attacks, but it was a lunge, a recover forward, you know, offline, and then a redoublement of that, you know, thrusting attack. So it was three lunges, but I kept the uh, integrity of the weapon. Uh, if you watch that fight at all, you'll notice I am always extended. I'm always behind my weapon. And there are pictures of us that were taken with us at full speed. We never posed for pictures. Uh, any wow. pictures that you see are us in motion, which was really cool. That's really but, cool. But um, I very quickly realized, oh, they're having me, because they were they were choreographing my European weapon like it was a Chinese weapon. And I'm going, it's not, but okay, I'm not, <laughs> that's, that, that's not a deal breaker. Mm-hmm. You know, I will just take, and that's why I'm here. You know, I, I understand this. But uh, I realized they were having me attack quadrants, you know, inside, outside, high, low, whatever it happened to be, you know, with whatever the attack happened to be so that Jet could, you know, do, you know, (laughs) 
do things that he's done literally thousands of times. Basically, I was I was spurring, you could say, cotiforms. Okay. Okay. Just, just visualize that. So, I, oh, you're having me attack quadrants. Okay. I'll do that. But, you know, uh, after we'd done a couple of phrases, would you mind if I, I'll give you the same attack to the same place. Would you mind if I got there this way or that way? And apparently one of the team, it was reported to me later, said, who's choreographing this? Us or the Guaylo? <laughs> and Wu Ping said, you know, Wu Ping said, this Guaylo knows what he's doing. <laughs> wow. So, and after that, we never had any trouble. And it was, uh, and, you know, Jet, you know, uh, because I they were five days behind, we came in and we just, you know, hit the ground running, literally. And, um, you know, I, I said to Jet, I, I missed working with the team because, um, and they've been together for like, you know, decades. Again, I had to fit into their house, but I, um, I said to Jet, okay, I'm going to target you here, here, and here, you know, just so you know. And, uh, and he goes, uh, oh, well, you're very skilled. You know, that's why you're here. And you're concerned with my safety. Yes. And I went and said, yes, I am. <laughs> and he laughed, went, me too. And, uh, <laughs> and, and we got along great after that. But there were times where I had to totally commit to where he was going to be, but I never actually released my fingers until I knew he was there, uh, which comes down to training. Yeah. Um, many people will throw the weapon. Uh, what I'm doing is I am throwing the body and I'm doing exactly what I would do to generate tremendous power and deadly accuracy, but I never allow it to release into the weapon. Does that make sense? That is always control. Yeah, perfect sense. And that, and that comes from well, it, it's also like when you're when you're training somebody you know, with a martial art. Again, you're, they're not there to be your punching bag, you know. Um, and when you're when I'm taking my martial arts into storytelling, uh, I, I tell people, look, we're not wearing protective equipment. Our only safety is our control and our awareness. And the fact that the two of us are in perfect sync and they're the martial parallels. So, you know, my martial arts have made me a better performer and my performance experience and teaching experience and choreographic experience has made me a better martial artist. That's cool. Oh, well, you, oh, you asked about the whip. Oh, and I've, I oh, yeah. So just to finish the idea about the whip, okay. I, it, what other people were doing didn't make sense to me. So I said, well, when when the whip lines up with itself, it forms a loop. But most people, if you hold the handle up, it loops down and forward. Does that mean, can you visualize that? I think so, yeah. It's essentially like a U, okay? Yep. And the whip is in front of your hand and handle. Uh, and, you know, when you throw it, you don't get much. If you get a loop at all, you don't get much. What you're doing is you're throwing the tip. Okay. And you're essentially pushing energy through the whip, you know, and then the fact that the whip is a, a continuous taper means it accelerates until it breaks the sound barrier. The tip of the whip goes uh, 768 miles per hour. Wow. A speed of sound is about 1088 feet per second. The tip of the whip will do up to 1400 wow. feet per second. Well, 45 is only 900 feet per second. Mm -hmm. So it is obviously it's literally supersonic and that is a lot of power. It'll cut you like a knife because of the velocity. Uh, so that's that's a lot of responsibility. Most people throw the whip out and then yank it backwards, which means they're pulling all of that energy back to themselves. And that's why most people hit themselves. Okay, first off, we don't do that. But the other thing I was just kind of going, and, and if I yank it back, that's your chance to come and get me. Uh, and I'm going, well, with a, I would never have my sword behind me. So I looked at this as... Um, a flexible bladed weapon to me, 
you know, mastering the bullwhip is, you know, uh, mastering a supersonic flexible weapon. And I am always behind my elbow and my hand is the angle of my hand sets the angle of the tool, whether it be, you know, a rigid tool like a sword or a stick or a flexible tool like a whip. And what I do is I pick the whip up and I turn my hand over. Now the loop is on top of my hand and the whip is behind my hand. Does that make sense? I think so. So what I do is I roll and stab. If you you look at any of my stuff on the internet, you can Mm -hmm. see that. And if you look at Michelle, I actually kind of refined this. I was exploring it at the time and I refined it for her. And then I've been building on it and refining it. But my system rolls and stabs, uh, which is more efficient. Um, more pleasingly aesthetic, if you will. Mm -hmm. Look at Michelle. The accuracy is, um, if you look on my Whipmaster reel online, it's on YouTube, you'll see me cut the wick out from under a candle flame. I saw that. That was cool. (laughs) It was, and I didn't even (laughs) want to do the shot. I live outdoors. I never practiced this. But, you know, that that's the accuracy I can have. I can take a target out of your hand as we pass at full gallop in opposite directions, you know, on horseback. Wow. Which then that's that's why you train to do that. And the trust that you develop with your horse, you know, to let you do that is no small thing. We'll get back to that. Mm-hmm. But uh, so I've got basically I come from a sword background and then my my work with Gurudan and the footwork that I used to struggle with. The whip made me realize, oh, he's trying to get me to line my whole body up so that I do the same thing at the same time with all of the parts. So the whip was enormously helpful. I created my own system. And with mine, I roll and stab, which makes it more efficient, more accurate, more effortless. It also means I'm always throwing the whip last rather than the tip first, which builds in an automatic safety factor that no one knows about except you know, people that I've trained. Okay. So that's very useful when you're working with a human partner because yeah. it's all well and good to stand out of range and make a big noise. Mm-hmm. But I'm either in range, I made just out of range so that I just miss you, or I'm in range so that I hit whatever I want to hit. Theatrically, I'm, you know, taking the gun out of your hand or the knife or whatever. Combatively, I'm hitting you in the hand. I did a thing for um, Mythbusters. Yep. And they said, what that really awesome. than that? And I said, well, Put on the welder's glove. You tell me. And it was, yep, yeah, I'd, I'd, let, I'd let that go. Uh, but no, I my wife got hit once in a show. Not by me. Um, you know, my partner, the, the horse shied away from a buffalo that was at the end of the arena. And when my partner came down, he opened my wife's hand to the bone, to the, uh, to the folder. She finished the show. We, uh, we went on to finish the whips. Then we went into lances. Then we had a sword fight. And then she, she and I did a synchronized bullwhip tango. We're taking a bow. And I said, well, that went really well. And he says, I have to go see the men. I go, what? And she showed me her hand. And I'm looking at the tendon and the bone in her hand. Wow. And, oh, yeah. So, you know, that'll, that'll pop an eyeball just fine. And that's, yeah. that's the thing. My, I have a tool that goes over 700 miles an hour, which means I don't have to. If you cover up, I'll just hit you somewhere else. You know, and then I just, uh, I just did a uh, collaboration with Grandmaster Ron Liu, uh, who's the keeper of the flame for Kakoi um, Kenyete and Dosipares, where he, he lives at close range. I like long range. That's why I like weapons. It's like, you want me? You got to get through this sword. You want me? You got to, you got to close 
the 10 feet of whip and three foot of arm. So, you know, in order to get to me, and if you think you're going to eat the pain and then just, I'll be waiting for you. Cause by the time you close distance, I will have reversed the whip. Now I have a baton. So all of my collie comes into handy. I can release that a little bit. Now it's a nuncha, you know, or a flail or a rope dart or anything you've studied has very, very eloquent voice in the whip. But it, uh, yeah, I've, I've spent 40 years now, you know, refining this. And, uh, but with Ron, we did a, we did an investigation of combative bullwhip at multiple ranges. Cause I've always been having to take care of my partner, mm-hmm. but in this, we, I had one of my students and we dressed him up and we got to beat the hell out of him, <laughs> but it was just like, it was, you know, a, I always had these, um, I knew that okay, instinctively I have these options. But with Ron, I, you know, I get to, I got to learn some of his, um, you know, dosiparis and coiquinetes uh, techniques to supplement what I had already envisioned. And then he got to, uh, he doesn't have my long range, but my medium range is his long range. And then our checking hand range, envelopment range and submission range, you know, they overlap. So it was, it was a real meeting of the minds where, where, um, my friend Dan Trout is, uh, he filmed it and he's editing it right now. So I'll have something new to come out uh, on that. I, I have a lot of uh, instructional DVDs. Cool. Um, Ray for the stage and screen, broadsword for the stage and screen, several on Bullwhip. Um, my legacy that I decided to do about four years ago was uh, Mastering the Bullwhip Volume 3 and 4, okay. which is essentially a step-by-step progression to train yourself to confident professional level excellence, you know, with the whip. Cool. Um, by the way, all of this www.delongis.com, D-E-L-O-N-G-I-S.com. Cool. You can also see where to come to train at the ranch, Rancho Indalo, because I, I, I enjoy teaching. So we sort of welcome people who want to have an adventure and come and train with us at the ranch. That'd be fun. I'll have to maybe talk my wife oh, into that. Oh, <laughs> oh we, we do do a couple's, uh, we had a couple honeymoon here once, which was fun. Wow. Uh, yeah. I was just like, okay, yeah, that's, that's an adventure, but we do, do uh, you can come for intensive training or you can come just to, I've always wanted to try this, you know, mm-hmm. and know that I'll keep you safe and you can investigate stuff or, you know, your wife can sit in the spa and, uh, you know, and watch you train, or you can sit in the spa and watch her train. (laughs) My wife, Dr. Mary is, has her PhD in cellular biology and anatomy. She also trains with me in Shinkendo all the time. She's a black girl as well. Um, She's the brains of the outfit. I'm, uh, I'm the circus. She run off to join. She now does all of (laughs) all these things and she's good. And I'll hold targets for her. That's how good she is. So (laughs) I want to get to one thing now, before we started recording, you you made a comment that I thought was really interesting. And I wanted to make sure I brought it up. We talked about horses and talk about the connection between horses and martial arts. I thought that was really interesting when you brought that up. Okay. Oh, to finish the thing about the, uh, so I have with the whip, I want a supersonic ally. With a horse, I have an 1,100-pound adversary or I can have an ally. I want an ally. Okay. I have to earn his trust for him to let me make the decisions because he, he's always going to be a better horse than I will. Right. But I do, um, you know, after I didn't start till I was 39, and my, my friend uh, Colin Dangard of the Australian Stock Saddle Company, uh, he was supplying me with whips when I was working with Michelle. And afterwards, I went out and took a ride and said I'd love some lessons. And he wasn't terribly interested. I said, I'll teach you how to fight with sabers on horseback. And his eyes got real big. And, <laughs> oh, I started riding his horses and made that commitment. And 
he made my dream possible. And then we performed for 10 years, you know, with uh, bullwhips and lances and sabers on horseback. And uh, I learned a lot. And cool. I was able to, I've done, uh, I've created roles in action in 13 countries on five continents. Wow. 11 of them on horseback. And everywhere I've gone, I've been able to make, I've been able to make the horse an ally. Okay. Which you know has given me credibility in my performance, and of course, it's given me adventures I would never have had. So p- perhaps the moral of the story is: uh, dreams do come true. You yeah. just don't give up, and you're—they'll seldom come true on your timetable. Yeah. But if you stick it out, you—you'll—you'll uh, you'll experience some wonderful things. I've—I've I've ridden on both capes, both Cape of Good Hope and Cape Horn. You know, I, and I, well, when I was at Cape Horn, I, you know, looking down at the Straits of Magellan, I'm kind of going. Who would have thought in sixth grade geography that I'd go, <laughs> I'm on horseback, Cape of Good Hope, you know, at Cape Horn. That's awesome. Uh, one last thing on this where, where the parallels come in. Mm-hmm. I remind people, no matter what your tool is, because, of course, you know, all weapons are tools. Right. <laughs> and uh, every one of them is inanimate. It's, it is an inanimate object until you pick it up. And then it's an extension of your will and your skill and your training. So each weapon affords you assets and it each weapon does what it does better than anything else. Each weapon has its strengths and each weapon has its vulnerabilities, which is of course what makes for interesting choreography, I think. But you have to make that tool an asset. Uh, it's not the, the tool, <laughs> the, the tool will always want all of your attention all of the time. You can't do that. It has to be an extension of you in order to maximize its effectiveness. And then each each tool, as I said, it has its strengths and its vulnerabilities, which is what makes it interesting to study. You know, it's been fascinating me for 50 years. Same thing with horses. You have to turn this 1,100-pound beast with a mind of its own into an ally by winning their trust by, and the first thing is, um, you balancing yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I didn't figure this out, you know, for quite some time, but finally with all of the other things that I'm doing, I kind of went, you know what a horse stance is, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. There's a reason they call it a horse stance. Mm. Yeah. Cause it's like you're on a horse. Okay. If you're in a horse stance and doesn't matter whether it's Chinese or, you know, you know, Japanese or you're in a horse stance basically. Right. If your chest gets in front of your knees, you're off balance. Right. That's how I flip you. You know, if your shoulders get behind your heels, you're off balance. That's how, you know, I can manipulate you and throw you around and flip you or whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. Obvious. Right. Yep. If you can't be in balance on your feet standing unless you're you can't be in balance standing unless your feet are under you. OK. Right. What makes people think that they could be in balance on horseback if their <laughs> feet are not? Yeah. And almost everybody rides a horse like they are on a motorcycle, you know, and they're touring and they're back. And that is a style of riding. It's a Western, there's, there's a Western style and it's a working thing where I'm on horseback all day and, you know, and so you can, it's just harder to get into the rhythm of the horse. When I'm on horseback, I'm, I'm trying to do precision weapons work on horseback, which means my legs become my shock absorbers. That means my hand is still and I can do precision things with swords and whips and lances. And I've shot live ammo. I, I did a lock and load with Gunny Lee Army where I was shooting a single action forty five caliber pistol from the back of a galloping horse that I had met the day before. <laughs> <laughs> wow. 
and, and basically if you're in balance, you know, you, and, and, and there's yet another parallel, but uh, to be in balance, you have to be in balance on your feet before you can be in balance on a horse. You, it, the two of you have to become one. You have to balance yourself because if you're balanced, you can help the horse balance. And he feels that if you're out of balance, you can unbalance the horse. Horses stumble all the time, but if you don't make it worse, they recover within a step, just like we do. If you've got some nasty kid on on your shoulders pulling your head backwards or forwards, you know, I say, you know, riding a horse is a little bit like having your nephew sitting on your shoulders. <laughs> they can, if they're sitting on your shoulders straight up and down, it's pretty easy. If they're not straight up and down, it's pretty freaking miserable. Well, welcome to the life of the horse, you know. So I enjoy it very much, and I'm just so grateful that, you know, my replacement parts have uh, uh, allowed me to continue to do the things I love to do. That's awesome. Who are three or four names you would put on your personal Mount Rushmore of martial arts? Well, <laughs> Maestro Ralph Faulkner, mm-hmm. Dan Inosanto, yep. Kaiso Toshishiro Obata. Nice. I had the great pleasure to work with uh, Joe Lewis, and um, I really, it, it was it was quite an adventure. He he had come in when I did uh, Circle of Iron. Okay. Um, he did some reshoots because they, they wanted to uh, eh, just add some more action elements for the Cord character. Mm-hmm. And so we had uh, we'd done some reshoots back in L.A. And he had said, I'd like to have you. I, I admire your athleticism. I said, but I'm just a brown belt. And he said, yeah, but, no, but you're an athlete, you know, and this and that. And so he was the one who was responsible for my getting to be in Jaguar Lives which was my first trip to Spain. Mm-hmm. Oh, I got some stories, but you'll have to buy me a drink. <laughs> Do that another time. When Definitely. you come to visit, you and your wife. Definitely. Um, so, and he was extremely accomplished. I went back and taught at karate college a couple of times in uh, Radford, yep. uh, where he and uh, uh, Bill Wallace and um, Dr. Jerry Beasley, you know, they would, yep. they would host this, uh, you know, so that, uh, he's definitely there. I've, I've really only met Bill, you know, through uh, Joe. And, but, you know, Bill is an extraordinary martial artist, of course. Yes. I just worked with Scott Adkins and I, you know, had nothing but, you know, respect for his uh, skills and the things that, uh, you know, he, he has done on screen. And, mm-hmm. you know, and in term, oh, uh, do you know who uh, Gene LaBelle is? Oh, yeah. Gene LaBelle. I met him one time in 1995. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, Gene, Gene, uh, Gene was one of my whip students. Uh, he, oh, wow. he, he was one of the ones responsible for getting me in the Black Bull Hall of Fame. Wow. And uh, when the cover came out, he was, of course, on the cover of the magazine. And I get a call from him that day. And he says, you're my hero. You know, <laughs> and I'm, I'm kind of going, <laughs> thanks, Gene. That's really nice. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, we went we went to his um memorial if you will or his celebration of life and uh you know one of the things i used to love about gene was uh <laughs> he would go don't worry this isn't gonna hurt me a bit you know and then he'd come <laughs> up and choke you out or twist you into some god off the first time i met gene i was guesting on the hardy boys oh wow I was kind of the, uh, yeah that's a long sean cassidy ago. and parker stevens <laughs> and he was cutting in and uh uh, I guess he was doubling Parker for a minute. You know, I was teaching this martial arts class and he came in and, you know, one minute I'm shaking his hand and the next minute he's doing some Japanese move that sounds like you're ordering sushi, you know, and then I was splayed out. I was over his head and then I was on the floor, you know, and I'm reaching up from the floor and going, it's a pleasure to meet you, Mr. Capel, sir. <laughs> uh, Dan Santa used to talk with, uh, you know, great affection and admiration. He says there, mm-hmm. there are two people who, um, you know, do grappling better than anybody else I know. And one was uh, Wally J, 
and the other was Gene LaBelle. And Gene was always, you know, you know, really wonderful to me. So he's, uh, I, I, I'd say he belongs up there. Definitely. Uh, uh, Jet Lee. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Well, hey, they deserve more than honorable mention. That's for sure. <laughs> that's a that's a great Mount Rushmore. So <laughs> nice. Yeah. And I, I met Joe Lewis once too. I met him at a, a tournament in Minnesota, and I think ninety or ninety one, he was there as a guest, and I got a autograph from him back then. I didn't didn't get a picture, unfortunately. So I've got uh, well, I've got a picture of him. It was like oh god, it was I don't know twenty eight years later or something. I was back at Karate College and. My friend Jason McNeil, who writes for a lot of um, martial arts publications, good mm-hmm. script writer, too. He had a, an original poster, and we both signed it. So, and he may have about the only original poster that has both of our signatures, because of course, you know, Joe passed a couple of years yeah, ago. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, that something yeah, have. I do have a pair of boxing gloves with Joe's uh, <sighs> signature on it. Wow! So save your pennies, or if you want to uh, auction it, <laughs> yeah, there you go. It's expensive to keep horses, so. All right, so in all your years of martial arts, is there one philosophy you've learned that rises to the top? You keep coming back to it. It's super important to you. Never stop training. Nice. I like that. And well, and, and it's what brings me back to the, if I'm not getting better, I'm just getting older. Yeah. You know, and uh, there's only one of those things I can do anything about. And no matter the age, you can keep getting better because you just, where you may not be able to do some things. Mm-hmm. You know, um, due to, you know, the the years and the mileage, you can do other things better than you ever have before, you know, and continue to, you know, what what can I do? So how do I make the most of what I can do rather than going, oh, well, back in the day, you know, well, that, that was yesterday. This <laughs> this is the present, you know, and I want to take that present into tomorrow. So nice. Yeah. And uh, the, the, the activity, again, has, you know, shaved off a, a good decade or more i feel in better shape now than i did 10 years ago that's awesome Um, and and i'm kind of going well i guess i better not stop because it seems (laughs) to be working all right i got a few fun ones to wrap it up this one a favorite martial arts book oh guradan in asanto's um it's um guradan asanto's first book okay um the heck is that (laughs) he's written written a few i know the um kaisoto shirobata's book on shinkendo he actually has three Okay. Uh, yes, Shinkendo. He also has a book, uh, Tamashigiri, which okay. is cutting. He literally wrote the book about cutting because he's both, uh, he created, um, he was the one who's, who started using tatami mats, uh, you know, and high quality tatami mats as yep. a, um, you know, as a, as a cutting medium. He not only, um, most of the time when you're cutting, you're not testing the sword, you're testing the swords. You know, and whether you are successful or you fail, you look at the target and the target helps you go, okay, what did I just learn from that? It's not about, oh, I cut it. Oh, good. Well, it's like, did you cut it as well as you could have? Did you do what you mean to do? Did you, you know, were you accurate? Is the angle correct? Was your hasuji, your blade angle, you know, correct throughout, you know, whatever, whatever combination of things you were doing. Kaiso is also... uh, he was one of the few people who would test swords where sword makers would come to him and say, please break my sword, <laughs> which basically meant, please test this until it breaks and tell me how I can make it better. Okay. And he is one of the few people who has the expertise to go, ah, this was a little too hot or you did this or you did that, or this is too brittle or this is too, you know, uh, flexible. He, again, he was seven times all Japan cutting champion. He also still holds the record for 
taking a period sword and cutting a period helmet, which is designed for the sword to glance off. Yeah. Very few people can do that. And he, his is, I don't have a, my fingertips, the depth and length of his cut, but it couldn't be more perfect. Wow. But so literally, if you want to know what's suitable to cut and what are, you know, the, um, uh, the resistance factors of all of these different materials and not, a, and some of them are, you really shouldn't be doing this with a sword, mm-hmm. not good for the sword and probably darn dangerous, but he's gone through and he is, uh, organized it into a book. It's called Tamashigiri by Toshishiro Obata. It also has a series of progressively more difficult cutting combinations. Okay. So if, if you want to take, and most people, unless you're in this particular art, never cut anything resistant. It's yet another element of your training because you can wave the sword around and, mm-hmm. you know, and yeah, I admired the athleticism of, in the business, they're called trickers. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, people who are very, well, basically they're gymnasts. Uh, and you, you have a sword in their hand and they wave the sword around. It's not very good sword technique, but it's certainly flashy. And, you know, I, mean, cool. I admire the skill, but you're kind of going, and, uh, it, it's crept into choreography. I was like, for God's sake, stop spinning that thing. And why are you turning? <laughs> you know, you, you only get to turn if you've kept somebody busy. But anyway, they're, they're also the, the stuff they're working with is extremely light. So anyway, it's just, um, there's, again, the athleticism is, um, you know, extraordinary and, and admirable, but the actual sword technique is uh, <laughs> <laughs> often lacking, let's put it that way. So, but those, the, the, those books immediately come to mind. Okay. Um, my friend, uh, Nick Evangelista, who was, uh, you know, the assistant to uh, Maestro uh, Faulkner, he wrote a book called The Encyclopedia of the Sword, which is very good. Oh, okay. Uh, and, uh, oh, my friend Jared Kirby, uh, you know, wrote a book, um, translated both Angelo and Capofera, uh, which are, um, Angelo was small sword, Capofera was rapier. Okay. Italian rapier. Those are very good books. I'll have to check some oh, of those out. And my friend, um, um, Tom Meadows wrote uh, the Filipino Fighting Whip, which um, he and I met in 1985, I think, when we were both studying at Guru Nisantos. And um, what I like about Tom was, you know, he comes from a more traditional style, and yet he always welcomed my explorations. And every, you know, he's, um, he's very complimentary in his book you know, about what I'm doing. And every few years we would run across each other and we would spend a few minutes and then we would go away re-inspired by each, by the other, you know, so that we were constantly developing, you know, parallel knowledge, uh, you know, uh, alas, apart more often than I would have liked. But uh, so he is one of the few books, you know, on the Filipino fighting whip to exist. Okay. Yeah. And then I decided rather than writing books, I, I do instructional DVDs because yep. most people have, don't have the uh, <laughs> the attention span to really read a book. And it's yeah. also hard to learn something from a book. Right. So I wanted to give people visual aids. And one of the things about my instructional DVDs is I keep everything to between five, from five to seven minutes. Okay. And I focus specifically on one aspect that becomes the foundation for the next step to the next step. You know, each of, each of my DVDs are, um, uh, progressive individual lessons, each based on what came before, 
you know, until you have built up a vocabulary to be able to continue to train yourself to, you know, whatever level you want to uh, be at. But I, I found, I just thought this will be, I will reach more people this way. And I I will definitely put links out there for all those too. So people can check those out. I will have a new website soon. Okay. My old website has everything except the um, Mastering the Bullwhip Volume 3 and 4. And then this new one, I'm going to be doing uh, Bullwhip Combatives at multiple ranges. That'll probably be, it'll, it'll be out by summertime. Okay. Cool. Um, but I'm working on my new uh, www.delongest.com. Okay. The old one is still up. The new one will be better. Okay. Cool. Let me know when it's there and I'll, I'll update the link on the, on the thing. So I appreciate that. these last couple questions might be kind of <laughs> hard because you cannot pick something you've worked on or been involved with. So favorite martial arts TV show. There was something called the Shadow Warriors years ago with Sonny Chiba. Oh, wow. Uh, I forgot about that. And then there was something called Asarembo Shogun, I think it was, mm-hmm. which was a totally different style of um, samurai sword work. But it was, you know, the guy in disguise traveling around, you know, and he had two sidekicks. And then, of course, uh, the uh, Shadow Warriors, you know, Sonny uh, <laughs> Chiba would do bad haiku and then kill somebody at the end, you know, spectacularly. <laughs> But I also admired it for the way the camera coverage was part of the action and the action dictated how the camera moved as opposed to it being fragmented and all of that. Mm-hmm. So um, I quite enjoyed that. Did you ask TV shows? Yep, TV shows. The next question is favorite martial arts movie. Oh, one? Well, you, if you can pick more than one. You know, if, there's, if there's one that stands out, but if you have a couple. If I would have to... Um, my inspiration that continues to inspire me both as a filmmaker and as a martial artist and as, as an actor, uh, seven samurai, but the, uh, and if you, if, well, I'll tell your listeners, if you ever get the chance to see it in 35 millimeter in a theater, don't miss it. It's it's a little bit like why, if you've ever seen Robin hood in a theater, yep. Uh, in 35 millimeter, you you won't believe the depth of color and texture in the wardrobe. It's amazing. I'm trying but, to get uh, a local theater because this year is the 50th anniversary of Enter the Dragon. I'm trying to get our local theater to do a screening because I've never seen it on the big screen. So uh, uh, that, that, that's a good one. Fingers but crossed. But I, I I run towards Kurosawa. Oh, um, can't go know, wrong with that. Anjuro and Seven Samurai are kind of the um, holy trinity for me. Nice. And of course, I'm a huge fan of. Um, good answers there okay well what do you think (laughs) ain't some dilettante (laughs) (laughs) there you go all right this one i'm really curious about with your background i can't wait to hear what you pick for this one favorite it doesn't have to be a martial arts movie it can be it doesn't have to be favorite movie fight scene um do i get more than one yeah if you if you have more than one go for it (laughs) well it's it's interesting because it doesn't have to be i i'm a big believer well i love practical action Mm -hmm. Uh, i love seeing something you know with a minimum of tricks yep actually what i'd love to hear from you is your favorite movie fight scene and then your favorite movie sword fight scene if you have if you want to pick two that way that'd be kind of cool to hear well uh okay here's here's uh it's not a it's not an elaborate fight uh, but it is one of the things that reminds, um, again, in my work, and well, in, in Japanese sword play, Jitashi Zen, which means, you know, self, others, and environment. <laughs> it's, it's pretty foundational. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of my favorite early fight scenes is uh, from Russia with Love with Sean Connery and um, 
Robert Shaw, and they're in a train. They're in a train car. Mm-hmm. And uh, it is it's like fighting in an elevator. Yeah. But, you know, it's a train car, and there's an overhead berth, and there's a thing, and there's that. And, you know, the, the proximity makes the uh, factors into the story of the fight. Uh, it's the third character. And it, it, it's very limiting and it, you know, well, you, you see, you see the point. Yeah, um, definitely. I, I think of that. One of the most simple fight scenes. Um, oh, what the hell is it? It's a Gary Cooper movie. Um, he's a scientist and he's going to uh, Italy where this guy's daughter is supposedly being him. Um, he, he's having a fight with a mafioso who I think was um oh shoot his name's gonna be aldo nadi aldo nadi was one of the uh greatest fencers you know in in the world and apparently he had the ego to go just ask him he'll tell you supposedly his brother was even better but aldo was um and he um he has a stiletto and you know he's just he's this bad guy uh, but it's 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 a nice little bit of trivia it's like holy shit that's aldo nadi <laughs> one of the most famous fencers in the world nice Gary Cooper is he, he's a he's a scientist. He's he's not a superhero. He's not a um it's a, this is actually something Harrison Ford does really well. It's an every man put in extraordinary circumstances. But uh he so he's there and you know they they're fighting and the guy you know the guy has the knife and and you know uh, Gary Cooper is out of his class, but he gets a finger and he's spending this time trying to bend this finger back to get the guy to release his hold so that he could, you know, not get stabbed in the neck with this thing. And the tension of it is tremendous. It's And you're just like going, this is one of the simplest action things I've ever seen. But because of the story and the character works really, really well. Uh, in terms of sword fights, um, well, <laughs> you're back to Yojimbo Sanjuro. Well, Sanjuro. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, I think, 29 seconds of absolute stillness and then two moves. Um, but you feel very satisfied because you've already known from earlier on, oh, these guys are amazing swordsmen. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that that's that's an extraordinary, uh, you know, piece of uh, theater. The, um, you know, in the sort of Seven Samurai is, you know, wonderful. Yojimbo is wonderful. I've oh, been, yeah. I've uh, been inspired and homage that, you know, opening fight scene uh, many, many times. But in European, uh, one is Rob Roy. It's one of my favorites oh, because okay. a good choreographer, I think that's uh, Bill Hobbs. Be the Bill Hobbs or Bob Anderson. I'm not sure at the moment. Okay. Um, but here's the thing. In doing Highlander, I actually did a behind the scenes things. You know, my, my, my friend, uh, Bron McCash, you know, <laughs> He was often handed the the worst piece of crap, you know, by the prop guy, you know, and he had to build a sword fight, you know, you know, with Adrian. And when I did blackmail in season three, I did blackmail in season three and then Duende in season five blackmail. I was given this, you know, god awful sword and Bron goes, I'm sorry. And I said, sorry, man, I can make this work. <laughs> but, uh, and then when we did, um, you know, Duende, it was the rapier and dagger in the rain and, you know, Tebow's mysterious circle. And that was, that was really, really cool. Sorry, you've just taken me down memory lane. I'm trying to go. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, you're a great, uh, you're a great storyteller. So I, I love listening to this. Oh, so I did a behind the scenes thing for, um, you know, for Highlander, where I said, every immortal has chosen a specific sword. He's either chosen it for themselves because they feel virtually immortal. You know, that I, me and this sword, nobody can beat us. 
or it was chosen for them by their teacher. So, you know, I did a thing with, uh, and Adrian had like three because, you know, he had his original, you know, uh, Claymore. And then he had, uh, there was an evil, you know, uh, Highlander at one point and then his usual katana. So basically what I did was I described the sword and, you know, what its advantages were and what it could do and this and that. And I essentially went with the... Um, uh, conceit that all of these had indeed been chosen because each one does what it does better. And it's an extension of that particular person. So what I love about Rob Roy is Liam Neeson's character is very upright, very direct. He comes at you from the front, uh, you know, and he is using a very traditional Scottish basket, a little broadsword, and it's a weapon of power. It's very powerful. You can cut people in half with it, <laughs> which he does at the end. Uh, whereas uh, Tim Roth's character is um, a rapier. And a rapier is all about deception, and as is Tim Roth. He's a liar. He's a bastard. And he is utilizing a weapon that relies on, I'm not telling the truth. I am, you know, I'm, each, each attack is, you don't know if it's true or if it's false. So pitting these two... Um, these two characters together, they their weapons were an extension of their personalities, which I thought was this is excellent storytelling, and you know this is superior. Well, this is excellent choreography, and this yeah. is superior storytelling. Um, so that, and I'm sure when we hang up, I'll think of seven, seven. <laughs> oh, well, frankly, uh, one of my two of my favorite fight scenes are. Um, you know, the Spanish swordsman and, you know, Jet Li and Fearless. Mm -hmm. And I'm rather fond of the rapier and dagger fight in the rain um, in Highlander in Duende. Nice. <laughs> Anything I forgot to mention that you want to make sure we get out there before I let you go? Uh, just make sure people know that they can come and train with me if they want. And I will they definitely definitely put links for that. And uh, Either uh, you can have an action adventure and train mm -hmm. to be your favorite action hero. Or you can come and investigate, uh, you know, a variety of different things I specialize in, particularly, uh, you know, my methodology with the whip uh, and the other things I do with a variety of different martial arts and weapons. So Nice. Well, I'm hoping to get out there because I haven't been to California in almost 10 years to visit friends because I used to live out there and I'd love to get back. And who knows, maybe someday you know, my son will get to work with you. He's going to school for acting. So maybe maybe he'll get to do a do a project with you in, in a few years i would like that you know tell tell him to hire me i'll, I'll help him look great you know <laughs> when you need this veteran actor who happens to come with skills uh keep me in mind <laughs> cool well anthony i just i, I want to thank you so much this has been such a blast like i said you're an amazing storyteller i actually i, I thought of you i was going i was actually watching the episode on macgyver and i'm like <laughs> And I'm like, oh, it is wow. one of my favorites. Yeah. I know. It's, it's, and I told you, that's my all-time favorite TV show. I never missed an episode when I was in high school. I honestly tell people it's it's because of MacGyver that I, I never drank <laughs> because he oh. he didn't drink, he didn't use guns, and it was like I just thought that was the coolest thing. So I just I I got hooked on that show, and I own the whole series on DVD, and I've rewatched it with all my kids and. <laughs> I love it. So yeah, it's, it's all time favorite. And it, it always, and actually our, our dog that I was talking about before that we had for 16 years, his name was MacGyver. So yeah, that's, very <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's cool. But, but no, seriously, from the bottom of my heart, I want to thank you so, so much. This will be so much fun and I can't wait to get the episode out there. I'll put links for all your stuff out there and we'll, we'll get, hopefully send some people. I will, I will uh, put it up on my uh, social media too. When you uh, send me links and stuff. Yeah. Know, awesome. This, this, uh, I had to laugh. You said, you know, I don't know if we'll be able to, you know, some, sometimes filling an hour and I'm kind of going. <laughs> <laughs>
that's uh well, if, <laughs> I am if, if everything stays on schedule i'm about a month ahead so your episode right now is scheduled to come out february 16th no, so in about about a month it'll, be, it'll take me a little time to get it edited i have i think i have eight interviews scheduled in the next nine days so we'll have fun and yeah. uh I, I hope well <laughs> i i knew i could promise you don't worry there won't be any yes or no answers <laughs> i appreciate that very much <laughs> and i have i haven't had that in a long time so but seriously it's, it's been an absolute pleasure and an honor to have you on the show and and i will be in touch soon excellent all right have a good evening Thanks, sir take right. care and best of the family Thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist. We hope you will join us every week for a brand new episode with a different martial artist telling their story. If you enjoy the show, be sure to leave us a review. Also, be sure to check out our website at everydaymartialartist.com. There you can find all of our episodes and contact us to suggest guests and ask questions. Again, thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist, and we'll see you next week.